Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with the author of an entertaining new book that looks at the enduring legacy of Siskel and Ebert. The Chicago critic team formed an unlikely duo that ended up influencing the film industry forever. Speaking of critics, the dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new musical that looks at the career of jazz legend Louis Armstrong. And later, I'll talk to Chicago Magazine dining editor Amy Cavanaugh about the best pizzas in Chicago. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in this morning. You ever need some help deciding what movie to watch? Whether you're headed to the theater or at home on the couch, scrolling your streaming platform, maybe you and your companion will head over to Rotten Tomatoes to see what's fresh. You're not alone. A 2018 survey found that a third of Americans check the review aggregation site before seeing a film. But back in the 80s and 90s, there was no Rotten Tomatoes. But there was Siskel and Ebert, and many Americans paid attention to their reviews and their thumbs. Because if Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel both recommended a movie, well, then it must be worth checking out. Of course, agreeing isn't what they did best. Well, the real uh, buried subject here is our disagreement about Full Metal yeah. Jacket, and I would be very surprised if you liked that movie in 30 years. I don't think it's going to hold up that well. In, it's not one of his great films. In the, in the world of films as made today, Full Metal Jacket is a film to recommend. Full Metal Jacket is a very, very fine film. For you on this show to give thumbs down to Full Metal Jacket, I think, is a gross mistake. I think it is a film worth seeing. I think seeing. I'm trying to put the movie in a context, and I'm trying to tell people that it is not as good and this as, is a show where you give benji the hunter a positive review and not now gene films. that's totally unfair because you realize that these reviews are relative benji the hunter is not one-third the film one-tenth the film that the kubrick film is but you know that the same thing happens that you review films within context mm -hmm. so it's not fair for you to compare those two reviews and you know it and you should be ashamed of yourself no i'm not Now let's take another look at the movies we reviewed this week that cracks me up every time i listen to that clip a new book titled Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever takes a closer look at the critic duo and their enduring influence on the film industry. It tells the entertaining story of how two Chicago critics with little in common ended up working together on a TV show that continues to influence film criticism and pop culture. I recently caught up with Opposable Thumbs author Matt Singer to talk about the book. The New York-based film critic grew up watching Siskel and Ebert. So I know you were a fan of Siskel and Ebert. I was as well. I think I was probably around 10 or 11 when I started watching at the movies, that iteration of the Siskel and Ebert show. I gradually developed this uh, ritual on Saturday evenings because it would air at 6.30 on Saturdays in Chicago on the local CBS affiliate. So I had this whole routine every Saturday for a while. Do you remember when you started watching Siskel and Ebert? Well, I, it's funny. I don't remember how I started watching it, but I love to hear anyone I speak to about this book say words like ritual and uh, <laughs> things like that because... 
you know, right off the bat, I know, you know, like we, we speak the same language because <laughs> I did right around that same age. I'm guessing I'm a little bit younger just because when I was, I was doing this when I was like 11, 12, 13, and I was doing it for the, the, the Buena Vista, Disney, Siskel and Ebert, Siskel and Ebert show. That was the one that I was watching and became really obsessed with. So this was the early nineties for me was when I, Again, I don't remember like how I found the show, but I just know that by that age, ritual is the perfect word. And unfortunately for me, I'm envious that you could watch it at like a reasonable hour on a (laughs) Saturday night. I, growing up in suburban New Jersey, you know, for me, because it was a syndicated show and they were at the mercy of whatever local station uh, licensed the show, they would put it on at odd hours. And really what I remember is it being on late at nights on Sundays talking 11 or 12 o'clock at night and I'm 11, 12 years old, which is after (laughs) bedtime. You know what I mean? So for me, I had to, I had to create this entire, my ritual involved me saying good night, mom and dad, and going to bed in air quotes and laying (laughs) silently in bed for hours, but staying awake, waiting for them to go to sleep or at least, you know, go to their room, turn off the lights, all that jazz. And then around midnight, I would have to keep an eye on the clock somehow. And then around midnight, you know, I had a little TV in my room and I would turn it on at volume setting one because I was just praying they wouldn't get too loud yelling at each other and alert my parents. And that was how I would watch the show. And when my parents found out years later, they were a little miffed that I had been deceiving them this whole time. Now I think it's okay. Now that it's turned into a book. I think it's okay. But yeah, they, I, I pulled it off, thankfully. They didn't know I was doing this for, for years. That's a, that's a lesson for our, my younger listeners, and now they can just pull out their phone anytime they want. But we had to actually set aside time and, and make space to, to watch these things that we loved. It's true. You know, that's a good point. It really, you, you, you know, it was, it was not an easy show to watch. It, you had to earn it. You know, if you were a Siskel and Ebert fan... <laughs> Even more than any show. I mean, any show back then, you had to, you were at the mercy of a schedule. I have two kids, you know, and I see them watching stuff on, on, on our TV. And on the occasion that we're watching something live that's being broadcast live, and they can't just pause it, or if they can't pause it, you know, that will throw things off. They're so, what do you mean there's commercials? What do you mean I can't just stop it anytime I want? What do you mean I can't turn on eight episodes of Bluey? If that's what I want to watch. The idea of a television schedule is so foreign to them. It is kind of uh, wild how how far we come. But yeah, that was the world of Siskel and Ebert. And it was even more compounded because it was a syndicated show. And sometimes it would just change uh, the time of day it was on. You'd turn it on at midnight (laughs) and it wouldn't be on. You'd have to go, wait, what happened? And And maybe it was 1230 now. Maybe it was 1130 if you were lucky. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was a weird it was a weird uh, existence. Fast forward, you go on to to become a film critic and, and do all sorts of things you actually I think you you got to be on a later iteration of the the program. Was the idea for a book about uh, Siskel and Ebert something that you considered for a while or did something kind of spark the idea later on? I've always thought there should be a book that I would have liked to read as an obsessive fan. But in terms of me doing it, that really uh, definitely happened later when, no, you know, there wasn't a book to read. And I had written a few other books and was looking for a new project. And, you know, I had a, an agent who I was, you know, sort of submitting ideas to. And I put together a whole list of ideas. And uh, despite that 
pathetic, obsessive, nerdy story I just told you, this was not on there originally. The reason why, I was kind of uh, intimidated by the subject, to be honest, uh, because A, it does mean that much to me that it was this thing that I revered and, um, you know, it's about these two guys who I looked up to and are writers, too, and uh, darn good writers at that. And so to be inviting those comparisons, you know, if this was a movie, you would see the single bead of sweat sort of trickling down my uh, forehead, I suppose, (laughs) I contemplated that. But before I showed the list to the, the, the agent, I showed it to my wife, and she was the one who looked at it and said, where is Siskel and Ebert. Why isn't it on the list? You, that's the, <laughs> she was the smart one who said, that's, the, that's the, what you should be doing. And uh, when I told her I was kind of trepidatious for the reasons I said, she was like, okay, whatever. Okay. You know, okay. You could do it. You know, I think I was maybe fishing for compliments a little <laughs> myself up. And she obliged reluctantly, but she also said, if anyone else writes the book because you decided not to, you're going to be angry about it. You're going to be pissed off. So I had to concede on that point that she was definitely right. And uh, so that was it. And from there, it really was a, a labor of love, a labor of love that grew out of uh, perhaps a pettiness or spite, I guess you could say. <laughs> but uh, but that was the the uh, the origin. Right. I didn't even think about that. So you're you're writing a book about critics who influenced and inspired a whole generation of critics who are now going to read your book. So That's right. Probably... And if they don't like the book, two thumbs down is just sitting <laughs> right there waiting for them. That is, don't think I didn't think about that. <laughs> you write in the, in the intro about how this television pairing almost never happens. At the beginning, there, there really is this mutual dislike of the other. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that that the meeting that's in the introduction was actually after they had shot this pilot which you can find and watch. And some people who I've spoken to, they can remember watching the show even casually and just remember them being this incredible on-screen duo. And they ask, like, was it that way in the beginning? And I, that's an easy question to answer. It's no, it was not <laughs> a, an instantaneous, you know, this, they, they were not great. And uh, they, were, they were pretty bad, to be quite honest. And, um, you know, the pilot, it was a great idea, but... They hadn't quite figured out how to turn that great idea into great TV. And um, so, yeah, that meeting that you're referring to was, you know, they had lunch a, a, a couple of months after the pilot had been made and then aired to very little fanfare. And um, the woman who became the producer of the show, Thea Flum, uh, she was sort of given the reins of the show after the pilot by the station that had made it, WTTW. And they basically said, you do the show. And, you know, she told me that when I spoke to her for the book, she said that they actually let her, if she had wanted, she could have replaced Siskel and Ebert. They said, if you have someone else in mind, you could get, you could try it. So she was the one who uh, had the vision that these guys could do it. And she took them out to lunch and tried to convince them. And as she remembered it, Gene Siskel needed a little convincing. Um, perhaps he wasn't as sold on, uh, you know, trying it again. He had been there the, for that first pilot. He knew how it went. And he also knew, you know, after they had uh, aired it, you know, this is a, a, a month or two at least later, and uh, he hadn't heard anything. It would just, it just sort of had been kind of, you know, dropped into the TV ocean and uh, kind of, that was it. And so he was a little, uh, a little skeptical or at least needed to be convinced and, you know, said, why should I, 
do this with you. And as Thea tells it, she said, you know, because I can make you better and I can make this something special. And and she was right. And it took a little while. But uh, they did realize how to turn their off-screen relationship, which was so competitive, into uh, something that really worked on television. You know, when I was a, a kid, I didn't think much that these incredibly famous film critics, because at that time, you know, they were, they'd be on late night talk shows as guests. And then whenever they would show, like, like they'd show pull quotes on the, the movie advertisements, you'd see the two thumbs up. So I knew they were incredibly famous, but I didn't think it was unusual that they wrote for my local papers. I, I'm, I grew up in the Chicago area. But then as I got older, I started to think more about how unique it was that it was like two Chicago film critics that were like, the most famous and just your personal opinion do you think developing the the show in chicago had some advantages that allowed them to kind of figure it out i think it was definitely a huge part of the show's story and it did come with certain advantages i guess it also did come with certain disadvantages especially in the beginning um because you know, it was a Chicago show, and I say this as someone who lives in New York, the snobs in New York <laughs> and L.A. initially were hesitant to air the show in their local markets on their local PBS stations. You know, it, it, within a, a pretty short amount of time, the show was airing on PBS stations all over the country. But New York and L.A. were kind of – they were not early adopters. They were – taking a while and perhaps going, you know, well, what do these Chicago critics, how can, you know, what do our savvy audiences need uh, <laughs> from Chicago critics, which I think was, uh, you know, I certainly don't agree with that, but I, it seems to me that that actually was what happened for a while. The advantage uh, for them being in Chicago was they were kind of outside of that Hollywood publicity machine. You know, they, they really were able to operate kind of independently from it. You know, there's stories in the book that uh, was told by a, a lot of people who worked on the show at that time about how they made their own clips on the show. When you tuned in to see sneak previews on WTTW, when they were reviewing Apocalypse Now, they would show clips from the movie. And these were not just like the trailer that might have played uh, in the theater. They would craft their arguments around the clips that they wanted to show, and they would make those clips. They would take the film prints from the press screening or even from a movie theater and, and trek them to some kind of transfer house, dubbing place, and they would pick out the clips specifically they wanted to show on the show. And it enhanced the criticism, and it just made for a more interesting show because, you know, again, this is mid to late 1970s. There's no internet. You can't just turn on YouTube to look at clips from movies or anything like that. This was the place to go for that sort of stuff. And the fact that they had unique clips really made it uh, a draw. And, you know, if the studios were breathing down their necks, I don't know how long they would have let that happen. And I think the other element, too, is that because they weren't showbiz phonies, if I can call them, call them that, they really established this identity as these very honest authorities, you know, like you really, you knew whatever they said about a movie, whether you were going to agree with them or not about whatever movie it was, you knew that it was their genuine opinion and they weren't being swayed by publicists or wanting to suck up to a movie star or anything like that. And I do think that some of that came from their being outside the New York, L.A. bubble 
and uh, being in Chicago. I absolutely think that was a huge part of it. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking with author Matt Singer about his new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. And when I saw She's Out of Control, I became so depressed, I actually thought about quitting my job as a film critic, feeling as though the movies had abandoned me, because what I was seeing there really wasn't a movie. It was some sort of strange concoction of really someone who didn't understand what movies were all about. Fortunately, however, I would see the movie say anything later in the same day, and all is right with the world. I'm still on the job. You know, people probably think you're joking when you said no, that I you were really thinking that. of quitting your job. But I know what you felt, because I sat there and I thought, Life is precious, life is short, and the idiots who made this film are taking two hours of my life and robbing it from me in order to give me less than nothing. Yeah. I mean, a movie like this is a crime because what it does is it robs life from people by requiring them to spend two hours having such a terrible experience happen to them. Uh, it's really bad. I always wonder when I'm in a bad, I don't know if you have this reaction, when I'm in a bad movie in a theater, mm -hmm. aren't you surprised that people stay? I think maybe they're just, they've spent their money but they don't about, have any place to go for two hours. Yes, but I would say this, when you talk about robbing your life, see, my thing I've always wanted to say to people, I've always wanted to stand up in the middle of a bad movie in a uh -huh. theater and say, aren't your lives worth more for two hours than the, even, say, seven bucks in New York City? Three fifty an hour, every, that's below the minimum wage, the new minimum wage. I mean, <laughs> get out and live. Go stand in the lobby and talk. That's one of my favorite exchanges between Siskel and Ebert. Apparently, the 1987 film, She's Out of Control, really struck a nerve. Today, when I watch clips of Siskel and Ebert, what stands out most is their ability to debate with such confidence. You know, I'll invite critics on my show, and I've tried some roundtables, and what I run into is either extreme politeness, no one wants to disagree, or uh, on the other end, there's like extreme fragility and defensiveness if someone expresses any pushback on uh, something someone says. So Siskel and Eber would get heated, but they never felt like the need to really alter their opinion. They just had such supreme confidence in their own ideas. Yeah, confidence is a perfect word for it. Absolutely. And yeah, they, uh, they, they were never under any sort of pressure self-imposed pressure to feel nice, especially with each other. And I absolutely think that was one of the things that really made them stand out, uh, especially when they would, you know, venture out of sneak previews or Siskel and Ebert and go on talk shows. I think uh, that's, you know, as much as the show itself was great and this place where they would debate in a really intense way with, as you said, never changing each other's opinion. This was, that was, you know, they would never, ever actually like, quote unquote, win an argument. They would just continue to hold their positions as hard as they could. But when they took that same energy and they went on The Tonight Show or Late Night with David Letterman or something like that, they brought that same confidence and honesty and authenticity to a world where, you know, like, that is anything but the norm. You know, they go on these shows and the first guest will be a movie star. And, and they're saying, you know, they're talking about their new movie and everyone's smiling. and Everyone's happy. Then my new movie. It's so great. I'm just so excited for people to see it. And then Siskel and Ebert might be the next guest and they come out and sit down. And with the previous guest still sitting, you know, right next to them on the couch, say, oh, that movie was really bad. People shouldn't go see it. I didn't really like it, actually. That's a, that's a piece of junk. And uh, that actor should know better. And um, I hope they do better next time, you know. And there's you can find lots of examples of it. You know what I mean? That that was uh, 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 and, and that was refreshing. You know what I mean? Because if you tuned in and you're watching all these people being nice and friendly, suddenly they show up 
And not only do they add some uh, honesty, they also add a little drama because they're saying things no one else would say. They're saying it to the faces of the actors, and you're watching the actors kind of struggle with that and see how they respond. It made for great television, and uh, uh, that that's a big reason why they became regular fixtures on all of those shows is because when they showed up, it always was not only fun and entertaining, it also could be kind of, kind of spicy because you didn't know who they were going <laughs> to insult or at least give their honest assessment of and how that person was going to take it. Right. And I even remember sometimes they would uh, individually interview, you know, they'd go on the press junkets or that maybe at a certain point the celebrities would come to them. But yeah, they were never afraid to ask like the hard questions. Uh, I just, I remember Siskel being like especially tough uh, on, in, in his interviews. Yes, uh, actually, you're, you're, you're totally right. And um, that was one of the things that I hadn't really remembered about the show until revisiting so many episodes for my research uh, was that for a period, a little after when I first started watching, so now we're maybe in like the mid-90s, they kind of started uh, trying, experimenting, adding some celebrity interviews to Siskel and Ebert, the actual show. Uh, kind of like after they would review a couple of new movies, uh, maybe instead of recommending a home video one week, they would have an interview with a director or uh, an actor or someone like that. And both Siskel and Ebert would do this, but I was really struck by exactly what you're talking about with uh, Gene Siskel's interviews, because, you know, I, I'm a film critic writer. I, you know, I cover this world and I've been doing it for a long time and I used to work predominantly in TV. So I did a lot of press junkets back in the day and I know what they're like. And they're just like how I describe those talk shows. Everybody's happy to be there. Everybody loves the new movie. Everybody's polite and friendly and smiling because everyone there, you know, they don't want to lose their access. They want to get some good uh, sound bites for their TV show or whatever they're there covering. And they're just, they just don't want to tick anybody off because they don't want to lose that access. And so that's the sort of stuff that comes out of those sorts of interviews. And Gene Siskel's junket interviews are unlike any junket interviews I've ever experienced in my life, because he's going to these places and then he's confronting these people with hard questions. <laughs> you know, he would go to a junket and they show this on an episode of Siskel and Ebert. He's interviewing Eddie Murphy and he says, like, why aren't you working with better directors? Don't you think your career would be better if you really challenged yourself and worked with some great directors? And you can watch Eddie Murphy's reaction, it's like he's, he's been, <laughs> he's absolutely bewildered. But I tell you what, he also gives a really good answer to that question. And then they have an interesting conversation. Like, it's, they're the best junket interviews that have ever existed. And I don't know of too many people uh, that have ever spent a long amount of time in that world who would have been willing to do that in that environment. And Gene Siskel was, he was absolutely fearless and he was totally unafraid of, yeah, being upfront and honest. And again, it gets back to that confidence. I think that again is a really good word. Yeah, I think that's another absolute asset of, of the show. And especially, I really think with, with Gene, like, I mean, I would not have wanted to be interviewed by him <laughs> because, you know, whatever question you don't want him to ask, there's a good chance he would have asked it. Right. I mean, you come into this with an extreme amount of knowledge, and then what type of research did you do? 
Uh, well, there was a, a few sort of different areas of research, obviously, you know, uh, talking to people about Gene and Roger and the show and working on the show, just trying to find as many uh, interviews with them as possible, where they are the ones talking about how they felt about each other, how they remember the show coming about, because there's, as there is about so much in the world of Siskel and Ebert, there's a lot of disagreement about how the show first came about. And just doing my best to find ways to have them talking in the book, you know what I mean? To try to get their voices into the book. And then the last big area was like actually watching the show, watching hundreds and hundreds of episodes, as many as I could find, doing it kind of chronologically so I could watch how the show evolved over time how the movie world evolved over time, because that's a big part of the Siskel and Ebert story is sort of the movie world changing over the course of the, the time the show was on the air from the mid-70s to the late 90s. Also watching their appearances on any, anything else they did, you know, if they showed up on, uh, on Letterman or Carson or Sesame Street, or for a little while there was a, a very interesting but kind of bizarre a uh, movie review show hosted by children on Nickelodeon, and they showed up on that show as guest guest stars one time. That's a <laughs> really wild thing to watch because you know you might think, well, they're here to encourage the the, the children of uh, you know the future film critics of the world and to uh, encourage their curiosity, and and right. they don't seem all that uh, convinced that these kids have the juice. They're really skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> and again, especially, you know, Gene, he, you know, you put him in any context, he's going to tell you what he thinks. So if he doesn't, if they don't agree with their assessments of the movies they're reviewing, they uh, they let these, these young people know, which, again, makes for pretty uh, entertaining uh, television. There's that clip of, I don't even know what the movie was called, it was like Three Ninjas or something about the kid ninjas, and R Roger says something about how, well, kids might find it entertaining, and Gene just like, without missing a beat, is just like, dim-witted kids. <laughs> it's like, there's like no way you could say that today. Yeah, that's actually Three Ninjas Kick Back is the motion picture. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we remember it well, but you've, and you have, uh, you have recalled the review quite correctly. Yeah. <laughs> They both, and this is, again, this is a, that's a great example of one of the fun things about Fiscal and Ebert, the show. So that's a case where, with all due respect to the, to the creators of Three Ninjas Kickback, maybe not one of the great masterpieces in the history of world cinema, <laughs> and a movie that they both gave thumbs down, right? They still found a way to have an entertaining segment and an argument about this movie, Three Ninjas Kickback, which they neither one liked because, as you said, like Roger at least looked at it where he wanted to tell kids, well, I didn't like it, but this movie is not for me. Perhaps a, a kid might enjoy this movie. And as you said, Gene's response was dim-witted younger children. And then when Roger was like, come on, we're trying to give some information here on the show. And he's like, no, no, I want to be the mean one. And then they have a, then they have a debate about like, what, what is the purpose of a review of a film like Three Ninjas Kickback? Should they, you know, is a movie a movie a movie? Does it matter who it's for? Uh, if it's meant for kids and little kids might enjoy it, even if an adult might not, does that make it a good movie or does that make it still a bad movie? Um, these are things that, uh, if you want to be a film critic, these are things to think about. And, you know, whether I was thinking about it at the time, I now look back and think about all the, all of the stuff that I was almost subconsciously learning about 
how to watch movies, how to think about movies from this show. It's, it really is. And it was for me such a, you know, really was like a gateway to understanding the world of movies. I didn't go back and look at it and say, boy, this doesn't hold up. I had the total opposite reaction. I thought, this is just a great time capsule for movie lovers for this period of time. If you want to understand this period in film history, this is the way to do it. Pick any episode. You're going to see what was new in theaters, what was going on in the world of movies, what issues were going on, uh, what was pe- what people were interested in, and you know the filmmakers that were important, the movies that were important. It's it, it really holds up as this wonderful yeah time capsule of of the movie world between the mid seventies and the late 1990s. I enjoyed the, the book tremendously. The, the two early chapters you uh, write about uh, Ebert before Siskel and Siskel before Ebert, lots of stuff there that kind of informs, you know, what they later became. And then just learning about the evolution of uh, their partnership. Really interesting. Talk to me a little bit about at the end, uh, the, the appendix and how you put that together. The appendix is one of my favorite parts of the book um, because that that kind of grew totally organically out of that research of watching the show. Um, the rest of the book is pretty much what I envisioned when I set out to do the book. You know, I had a, a had to propose, you know, write a proposal and, you know, go bu- chapter by chapter by what I thought would be in there. And pretty much the finished book is that proposal with the exception of the appendix. And what happened was I'm watching these old episodes and, you know, I, you know, I, I like to think that I'm pretty well informed about film. I, I should be, I guess. And I'm watching these shows. And what was kind of blowing my mind was how many movies were uh, unfamiliar to me. What surprised me was how many of these movies they really liked, gave two thumbs up to. And so as I was doing it, I was like, there's got to be a way to work this into the book. And especially because it is a book about film critics and film critics who meant so much to me because I got to follow them and discover all these movies that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. That kind of sparked the idea of that appendix, the idea being Let's take some of these movies that I have either heard of but never seen, or in some cases, I, I had never even heard of the movies. And then I went and watched them all and thought, oh, these are actually great. And so I picked like 25 of my favorites out of the movies that kind of fell into that category. Yeah, that was my kind of attempt to bring a little flavor of that, bring a little film criticism, or at least film advocacy, hoping that if people are interested in the book and check it out and then go to the appendix, maybe they'll find a movie that they've never seen, never heard of, and hopefully track it down and and enjoy it after they've read the book. Film fans all over the world are going to enjoy this uh, tremendously. I learned about your book. I got the press release on a day I was at the Siskel Center talking to their artistic director about Roger Ebert uh, writing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So it was like fresh, like both of their names were fresh in my mind when I when I learned about it. Uh, really enjoyed it, Matt. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Oh, thank you. It was a real pleasure. And you know who gave a, a, a really bad review to Beyond the Valley? Yep. <laughs> it's in your book. One Gene Siskel. <laughs> and the story about that is in the, in the book as well. But uh, yeah, it was great talking to you. That's Matt Singer. The New York-based film critic is the author of Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. It comes out Tuesday, October 24th, and will be available everywhere books are sold.
Quick reminder, if you listen to the art section Sunday mornings, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear. Check out theartsection.org. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. If there was a Mount Rushmore of jazz greats, there would certainly be a lot of debate over which four should be included. I know two musicians who would receive near-unanimous support for a fictional top four list. One of them is the subject of a new musical that's here in Chicago for a short run before potentially heading to Broadway. A Wonderful World shines a light on the life of jazz legend Louis Armstrong. Conceived by Christopher Renshaw and Andrew Delaplane, the musical is structured around Armstrong's four wives. Audiences see the trumpeter, played by Tony Award winner James Monroe Eaglehart, evolve over the decades, and lots of music. I believe there are 18 songs in the two-hour, 40-minute production. Let's hear what the dueling critics have to say. Carrie, we'll start with you. Is this what you would call a jukebox musical? You know, not exactly. Um, It's a bio-musical for sure, but it's not a jukebox musical in the sense that it feels like a review. And to me, it's a kind of neither fish nor fowl proposition at this point. I think part of that is because there is so very much in the life of Louis Armstrong to deal with, as you mentioned, among them, four wives, <laughs> and each of them makes an appearance here. It's, about, it's, it's his life, there is his music, but they don't feel fully integrated to me at this point in the show. And I'm not sure if that's because there's such an attempt to give as much story as possible, or if it's just simply that he is, a, no pun intended, such a monumental figure that actually finding a way to shape this material has at this point, I think, it's not exactly thwarted the creators. It it still feels like it's just out of reach. That said, I do think the central performance from James Monroe uh, Eichelhart as Armstrong is really, really wonderful, no pun intended, (laughs) and I do hope that there's going to be further work on this, because I think it's a show with a lot of potential, but for me it feels a little bit frustrating at this point. Jonathan, what did you think? Well, I think A Wonderful World throws out a whole lot of pizzazz and energy. Uh, It's handsomely staged in costumes. It has a ton of music. And I agree, there's a vibrant lead performance by James Monroe Eaglehart as Louis Armstrong. And, you know, even at downtown ticket prices, there's a heck of a lot of entertainment here for your dollars. Oh, for sure. What what isn't there, at least for, 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 for me... What isn't there, really, is very much about Louis Armstrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, you learn there were four important women in his life, that he came from New Orleans, that he picked up much of his style on riverboats, that he had white managers who were scoundrels, 
and that he came late to speaking out about civil rights. So it seems like you're learning a lot. But here's the thing. If you know the history of jazz, if you know how monumental a figure Louis Armstrong was in it, you won't find any of that in the show. Yeah. Now, yeah, they talk about it some, about Armstrong and his famous Hot Five, about us being the world's greatest trumpeter, trumpeter. But if you expect to see some evidence of that, some demonst- a demonstration of that, some recreation of his legendary solos from the 1920s and 1930s, nope, it's all missing in action. Indeed, yeah. Eaglehart, as Armstrong, rarely even puts a trumpet to his lips. Right, and I feel like there, there are two key characters who are introduced, his second wife, Lil Hardin, and King Joe Oliver, who was also a key mentor. And I feel like they're present, but their stories are not intertwined. We don't actually see their influence. Now, I know it's kind of a cliche or a trope of these kinds of musicals to have a scene where they're in the recording studio and they hit upon a certain device or a certain kind of way of playing that shines a light on how the musician will will be perceived going forward. But I almost longed for that here. Didn't you, Jonathan? I kind of felt I like... Did. Yeah, I want to see the scene where he's working with Lil Hardin and working with King Joe Oliver, and it's like, yes, aha, that light bulb moment where, oh, this is what I can do that nobody else is really doing, and this will become my signature, and this will become what I'm remembered for. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to elaborate on on that a little bit because I I think the 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 absence of any depth or dwelling on his actual music is hugely regrettable, despite the show's entertainment value. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, most people today who know Louis Armstrong know only the old Armstrong of the 60s, even the mm-hmm. 1950s, when he was a wonderful showman and a wonderful personality, but far past his prime as a trumpet player. So, you know, my big issue here with The Wonderful World is that it's missed this opportunity. Even if the jukebox songs, which I'm going to call them that, which form most of the score, uh, you know what, they have little to do with Armstrong, except that they were big hits during his lifetime, many mm-hmm. of them for the 1920s. So people have an idea. There's I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Baby, Up a Lazy River, Making Whoopie, When You're Smiling, I, I Found My Love in Avalon, and, and all that sort of thing. Now, I have another issue, and, and Carrie, I'm agreeing with you here, and it's that you really don't learn a great deal about the four women around whom this show supposedly is built, uh, except for wife number four, with whom he finally settles down to a a a a, uh, a long and happy domestic life. Um, otherwise, Lewis seems to have wooed and wed him fast and dropped them just as fast. And I was particularly disappointed, as you've already noted, not to have more about wife number two, Lil Harden Armstrong, who was such an important and celebrated jazz musician in her own right, uh, a role played here by Jenny Harney Fleming. Putting all that aside, I still confess that I had a good time. I had some laughs, and I was suitably impressed by several of the performers, the costumes, which are very handsome, by Tony Leslie James, the scenic design by Adam Koch and Stephen Royal, and a small band that really, really cooks, giving all those 1920 period songs very much a contemporary flair under musical director Anastasia Victory 
And I must say her lead trumpeter, Jeremiah Flack, whenever the trumpet was played, he was the one doing it off stage. Yeah, it's a good show for sure. Yeah, but I mean, it's there's not a, a lovely dive. interlude, and I thought this was kind of almost a centerpiece, although I don't know that it's designed to be, where uh, Armstrong has an encounter with uh, Lincoln Perry, who is known as Step and Fetch It, uh, played here very ably by DeWitt Fleming Jr., and they're kind of sharing their stories of being seen as sort of sellouts to white audiences, and they do this, they literally do a, a dance number, and it kind of, to me, encapsulates the central paradox of Louis Armstrong and a lot of Louis Armstrong and a lot of other black entertainers, but particularly of that period. Popular success did often mean having to cater to certain expectations of white audiences. How do you walk that line? I think that that's a key conflict that's sort of introduced and is embodied literally in the dance with uh, between Perry and Pops here. But it needs more of that throughout the show. You know, it, it, there's too much, to put it in very simply, I think there's a little too much telling and not enough really showing how these things develop in the moment, as we've said. But like you, Jonathan, I did have a very good time. It's a very handsome show. It's a very strong ensemble. I think for people who are not already familiar with Armstrong, although it's kind of hard to imagine there wouldn't be people who would know most of these songs, as you said, from the later period of his career. It's a lovely introduction. Um, and maybe it will encourage people to dig a little deeper and find the facets that were left out here. And indeed, I don't think even in a two-hour and 40-minute show, you can possibly hit on everything. So I feel like what needs to happen if this show is to go forward is a little bit more selective editing and shaping, and yes, sculpting, uh, to really let so many of the details, the telling details, come forward and better inform our understanding of just why he is, in fact, such an important figure, not just in jazz, but in American pop culture overall. Well, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. I agree with you. <laughs> it should, you know, if, when, you know, if, if when, when I'm king and you're queen or whatever, whatever, whatever gender-specific monarch you choose to be, or I choose to be, you know, maybe that's what will happen. But I think... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of money has been put into this show, a lot of talent. It's very slick. And uh, other than trimming it a bit, I don't think that they're really going to make sure. any of those You're probably right. changes. Yeah. You know, I would love a show that's all about Armstrong in Chicago. That would be wonderful. He spent right. a lot of time here in the 1920s, and, and he had a reputation as a guy you didn't mess with. He came from a tough background in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. He knew how to take care of himself. And uh, as I recall, the story was that he played in uh, uh, clubs or club uh, owned by one of the big gangsters in town. And the word went out from the top man, you do not mess with Louis Armstrong. Right. Now, I was going to ask you, Jonathan, our late colleague, uh, Terry Teachout, the, the theater critic for the Wall Street Journal, wrote not only a, a 2010 biography called Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, but a very well-received play, Satchmo at the Waldorf, which I know was done at Court Theater several years ago. I didn't get a chance to see that. I was just wondering if you did happen to see that, which was not a musical, but it was you know, a play about Armstrong. Um, yeah. Uh, I did not see that, and I and I and I certainly am aware of it. Uh, there have been several non-musical dramatic projects about Louis Armstrong, uh, uh, former Chicago, though it's been many years, and Tony Award winner Andre De Shields 
wonderful performer, spent a number of years researching and writing and performing a, a one-man piece about Louis Armstrong. That has not come to Chicago either, yeah. as far as I recall, and I would love to see that one, too. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. A friend of mine who's a, who's a musician and has written some books about music recently shared with me, apropos of not, not even knowing that I was going to be seeing this show, about uh, collections that Louis Armstrong recorded around the same time that Ella uh, Fitzgerald was recording her great American songbook, and he noted that Armstrong really was going deeper into black musicology, gospel, spirituals. Um, so that's an, another part of this that I wish would, you know, as you said, when we were king and queen, we would bring that forward. But I think it's an interesting thing to think about with Armstrong, that he wasn't just doing the work that made him popular to white audiences, that he was very well aware of the shoulders on which he stood on all the different musical influences that featured in jazz, and to you know, to reiterate what I think we've stated already, just to see a little bit more of that on stage as part of the creation of his work, for me, would have made a richer experience. But it's still a wonderful world. is still still quite enjoyable, and I don't think anybody will be bored if they go. Agreed. So, is there a, a live jazz band on stage? There is a live jazz band, and they are on stage, but you don't see them. They're right. behind the scenery. You only see them uh, a reveal uh, 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 at the curtain calls. And they're right. not playing jazz in any traditional styles. Like I said, this is a, a modern, all these old songs from the 20s, the 30s, and some are traditional songs like St. James Infirmary. Um, um, and, and they're all given a contemporary uh, jazz, not rock, but a contemporary, uh, you know, upbeat rendition by this very fine small band. And then is your sense that it will go to Broadway? I think it will. I think they'll... Yeah. Uh, one there, of the producers, notably, is Vanessa Williams, a famous uh, singer and actor, and uh, she, I know she's been very front and center with a lot of the PR on this. Um, so I think, yes, it probably will... Go and just for the sake of uh, James Eaglehart, I would love to see that performance on a Broadway stage. I think that he's he's more than earned that. Agreed. A wonderful world continues at the Cadillac Palace Theater through October 29th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. You're most welcome. Thank you, Carrie. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. If you were to survey 10 Chicagoans about their favorite pizza, you might get 10 different answers. It's something almost everyone from this area has an opinion on. So if you were to attempt to create a list of the best pizzas in the Chicago area, there's a good chance you'll get some feedback. Chicago Magazine dives into these risky waters in its November issue with a feature titled The Best Pizza in Town. Dining editor Amy Cavanaugh and her team of food writers have done the hard work and put together a list and ranked the area's 25 best pizzerias. And it should be noted, this isn't a tourist list, so you won't find Lou Malnati's, Gino's East, or Giordano's on it. I caught up with Kavanaugh to learn more about the process of determining Chicago's best pizza. The food feature in the November issue of Chicago Magazine not only highlights the, the magazine's 25 favorite pizzas, it ranks them, and given how strong people's opinions are on these types of things, I feel like this is kind of a 
a thankless endeavor. Did you approach it with some trepidation? A little bit. Um, I, I am definitely waiting for my inbox to <laughs> be, be flooded um, and my DMs um, from readers either agreeing or disagreeing. People in town feel very strongly about pizza. <laughs> that is uh, That is for sure. So where, where do you start when you kind of take on this task of uh, highlighting and ranking the, the best pizza in town? Where, what's the starting point? Yeah, so we last did this feature in 2019, and we decided to do it again because so many new pizza places have opened in the past four years. Part of that is due to a lot of pizza pop-ups um, during the pandemic that led to brick-and-mortar restaurants opening. And so we kind of felt like, it was time for a fresh look. And so to do that, we first took a look at everywhere we went in 2019. And, you know, some of them closed. And so we looked at where we needed to revisit. And then we made a list of um, newer places that we also really enjoyed. So each of the writers and I decided to start by coming up with our top 15 and then cross-referencing that against the 2019 list and um, our other list of new openings to determine from there which ones we needed to check out. So I was obviously interested in who came in at, at number one and was ready for, for anything. But I have to say, I completely agree with Chicago Magazine's selection here. Uh, Millie's Pizza in the Pan, that's my, uh, that's my favorite pizza. Isn't it so good? It's the best. I'm still imagining some, some debate. You know, it's so hard to rank all these pizzas because they're all so good and they're all so many different styles. But, you know, when we were kind of talking about it, it's like, you know, this is the pizza that, like, I can't stop thinking about. I want all the time that is such a fresh take on the Chicago pan style. And, you know, the ingredients are super high quality. And so we all agree that it was a really fantastic pizza. You were talking about, you know, so many things happened during the, the pandemic. I guess the story behind Millie's would be the perfect example of that. The the guy who, who started it really, that was like an endeavor that was the result of him not working during the pandemic, right? Yeah, uh, Robert Molesky had been working as a server um, and got furloughed like so many during the pandemic and put his energies toward perfecting the pan style. Um, he took inspiration from Burt's in Morton Grove, which is an iconic pan pizza restaurant, but kept working on it and working on it. And now it's really become his own thing. Right. Yeah. I remember in those when he first launched and you might've posted something and it looked so good. I had to try it. And he was located uh, like on the near West side, I, I think. And it was just pickups only. And then mm -hmm. I would get it and drive back to where I live in the suburbs. And now he has his own like location in, in the uptown neighborhood he, he launched in a logan square ghost kitchen in august 2020 uh, and had such success that he was able to open a brick and mortar storefront in the uptown neighborhood looking through the list obviously as we already referenced people are going to have their own opinions but number two uh, on the list is a, a place that's probably most known for its uh, detroit style pizza so that's kind of uh, an interesting decision to put it that high up yeah, I think that, you know, like so many people over the past, you know, five or six years, we've all become really taken with Detroit style, and apologies is the best in town. Um, they do wonderful Neapolitan-style pizzas as well, but their Logan Squares, that's what they call their Detroit pizzas, are just so ridiculously good. Um, I love the pepperoni with cold tomato sauce. 
the U.S. Pizza Cup winner, which is an award-winning pizza, has pepperoni and um, hot honey and ricotta, and they just do such an incredible job on that pizza. So what's really interesting or what's really great about this list is it sheds light on some lesser-known places, um, because I think when you, like, bring up the topic of best Chicago pizza, like, people think, like, Giordano's and Lou Malnati's, but there's, like, all these lesser-known places and, and, like, one place that I've driven by but I, I had never been to. So now, like, that it's on the list, it really is, like, intrigued me. It's, uh, I think it's Sapori Napoltani, and this is in Norwood Park in, in a strip mall? Yeah, you know, we really did try and um, want to find some kind of more off-the-beaten path and unexpected pizzas that are just fantastic. And so this is... Um, a Neapolitan-style pizza joint um, in, a, in a strip mall. And, uh, you know, the owner is from Naples uh, and has been making pizzas uh, since he was eight. His parents had a pizzeria, and so he has a long life behind him um, in making pizza, and now it's a family endeavor. Um, but, yeah, we recommend the margarita pizza there for just sort of a, a classic um, Neapolitan pizza, um, as well as one with India and red onions. So um, definitely uh, one of our favorite uh, thinner crust styles. And so obviously Chicago is well represented on the list, uh, different neighborhoods, but also some suburbs. And one that caught my eye is uh, one closer to my neck of the woods, uh, but I've never tried. And it is fairly new, uh, this place in Westmont called Kim's Uncle Pizza. Yeah, so it, it's a trio. It's a husband and wife and their friends. And um, the three of them had a little kind of like Instagram giveaway called Eat Free Pizza, I think like in 2018. So it started like a little bit before the pandemic where they were just pizza freaks and would make (laughs) them at home and like had nothing to do with them. So it was just like they'd give them away. You would respond on uh, Instagram and you could come get your free pizza. Um, And so from there they – moved to um, pizza fried chicken ice cream, which was a 2020 pandemic opening where they were doing Sicilian styles. And then um, they finally found their way to Tavern, which is really, um, you know, the the style that they grew up with and that they so love. So they moved out of pizza fried chicken ice cream and um, opened in Westmont. And so it's a little tiny spot. There's like two tables. Um, The pizza's you got to call in advance. I have gotten burned on that where I showed up and thought I could get a pizza. And it was like, it'll be two hours. <laughs> Whoops. Um, so definitely call. Yeah. But yeah, they just kind of speak to the new, um, you know, resurgence in tavern style that's been happening. I like that, that term. I think that's what my wife uh, would call me is a pizza freak. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's like a whole, yeah, there's a whole bunch of us out here. So everyone's going to have their, their own preferences, as we've already alluded to. Um, and when with a pizza, there's all these moving parts because there's so many different styles and crust sauce and then the, the toppings. So for you personally, what's like what's the most important component of a pizza? Oh, I think I'm going to go crust, yeah. honestly. Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, it's... Um, all parts are important, but I think, you know, with like Millie's, it's that crispy sort of cheesy edge. Um, we have a pizza on here at number 17, Robert's Pizza and Dough, which is in Streeterville. And he has like a sourdough brick oven baked crust that like I would just eat the crust plain. It's so delicious. So um, I think that, that for me, that is the key to a good pizza. Are you of the opinion that... Uh 
there is no bad pizza because some people will be like, even the worst pizza is still good. Or are you? Or... I kind of am. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we. It's so funny. I've been as we've been working on this, we, we ranked twenty five, but I'm like, this could have easily been fifty or seventy five. Like, there's so many good pizzas in town, um, and even some that we decided that you know just weren't going to crack the top twenty five are still really good pizzas and you know I, I find enjoyment in eating any style I, I think a lot of people do have you know they might just like tavern and they might just like a, a pan pizza but um i'm always open for any kind yeah that's how i that's how i feel too i did want to get your you have a unique perspective because uh you're from the east coast but i've lived here in chicago now uh quite a while and you also travel so as far as pizza, like the debate over pizza, would you say that's like, would there only be like a few regions that would debate it this hotly? Like if you went to Bloomington, Indiana, like they, they probably wouldn't argue over pizza this fiercely. No, I think we're really in a unique position in Chicago where we just have every style and we not, you know, so we got, you know, Neapolitan and New York style and New Haven style and things like that but we also have so many like home styles like deep dish pan soft and tavern are very much associated with chicago and so i think that we're very unique in having that many homegrown styles but also having all of these other american styles and international styles available here and so i think all of that just makes everyone um have very strong opinions about you know what they like in particular the best pizza in town ranking is in the November issue of Chicago Magazine. Amy, thanks so much for making time to talk with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Amy Cavanaugh. She's the dining editor for Chicago Magazine. The best pizza in town feature is in the current issue of the magazine, which is on newsstands. And you can also find the article online at chicagomag.com. Though it's hard for us to whisper with that old moon above the Mediterranean Sea. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. It is time to say goodnight to Napoli. There was hard for us to whisper, with that old moon above the Mediterranean Sea. Mm, in the morning, Senorino, we'll go walking. Where the mountains help the sun come into sight. And by the little jewelry shop, we'll stop and linger. While I buy a wedding ring for your finger.